Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Well, good morning to all of you in the sanctuary here and also those of you who are in the commons and any others that might be watching us via the internet. I sound a little loud. Now, my wife would say that's not unusual, but you tell me, am I a little loud? Yes, a little loud, so you can crank me down a little bit. That's all right. Um, I, I uh, really want to thank and appreciate the, uh, the worship team that you have experienced in various configurations since the beginning of the year. We've got a new praise team uh, led by Brenda Wright and Ev Rexford, and uh, I appreciate the, the opportunity for them to come and to give uh, just a beautiful flavor uh, and lead us in uh, musical worship. It's given me some freedom. I still lead once, a, once or maybe twice a, a month. Uh, but uh, I've been in so many other churches, it's amazing how many pulpits are unfilled from Sunday to Sunday, and ministers are gone, and uh, um, folks have welcomed me into their uh, congregations to be able to, uh, uh, to give a message uh, here, here and there. Uh, I deeply appreciate Pastor Chad's confidence in me and asking me to come and to fill in on uh, this Sunday. Uh, he and Christy uh, were down in Ohio for a few days to see Anna and her new husband, and then they went out to California to see Josh and his new wife, so they've had a little bit of a, a break, and uh, again, I appreciate uh, their confidence in, uh, in me, and we pray that they have a restful and a, uh, and a good time uh, together. Last week, uh, Pastor Travis uh, began at the second chapter of uh, the Gospel of Mark, and as we are traveling through uh, this in a very consistent way, and so we are on verse 13 today of Mark chapter 2. If you have it in your Bibles, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, and we're going to go through verse 22. Uh, your version will not differ greatly if you don't have mine, and if you'd like to read up on the board, you can. But today, the theme of the message uh, is the criticized Christ. Jesus was uh, criticized habitually, but especially in the second chapter, as he's beginning his ministry, uh, he's obviously been born, he's grown up, uh, he's faced uh, the enemy in the wilderness, and now as he begins his earthly ministry, uh, there are those that are going to come against him. So Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, it says, And he, that is Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew, or Levi, got up and did just that, followed him. And it happened that as he, capital H, Jesus, was reclining at the table in his, that is Matthew's house, all of a sudden we kind of jump and rocket ahead to a different scene. Many tax collectors and sinners, I want you to notice how many times those three words, uh, four words are used, and even the next sentence, the them. Many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, tax collectors and sinners, and they were following Jesus. Interesting. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with the sinners and the tax collector, you get a little uh, slant that he's trying to emphasize who he was fellowshipping with, right? 
they said to his disciples, why? Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came to Jesus and they said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days are going to come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. Nobody sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it and the new from the old. And a wine will burst the skins. And the wine is lost and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into new wineskins. May God's blessings go with the reading of the word and its hearing to our ears and to our hearts and to our minds. There is a website that is called Business Insider, and it ran an article that was entitled Seven Brutally Honest Rejection Letters. I don't know if you've ever got a rejection letter before, but here I've gotten a few of them in regards to music and writing music, whatever. But here are two examples of how not to confront somebody, all right? Sub Pop, which is an independent record label in Seattle, Washington, sent the following rejection letter. They said this, they said, Dear loser, <laughs> you can go to the next slide. Thank you for sending your demo materials to Sun Pop for consideration. Presently, your demo package is one of a massive quantity of material we receive every day at Sub Pop World Headquarters. Your material is on its way through the greater lower intestines, that is, the talent acquisitions process. We appreciate your interest and wish the best in your pursuit. Kind regards. P.S. This letter is known as a rejection letter. In case you didn't get that, right? New, Dallas, or New Delta Review, rather, is a literary magazine that's based in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They sent the following rejection letter. We got to go back. Thank you. Thank you for submitting. Unfortunately, the work you sent is quite terrible. Please forgive the form rejection, but it would take too much of my time to tell you exactly how terrible it was. So again, sorry for the rejection letter or the form letter. It is amazing how easily we can fall into the trap of criticism, is it not? I grew up uh, and uh, later was educated in a musical system in two universities, and uh, we were taught to critique and there is a difference between critique and critic, but it's a pretty fine line, and some people don't figure that out. The Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, maybe some of you have read some of his devotional material. He lived for years in an abbey in a place called Gethsemane, but it was in a strange place called Kentucky. And he suggested the following. He said, criticism is such a pleasing sin that it moves quickly from mind to mouth. My mother uh, did me many favors. One of that was to uh, in, inspire in me a healthy vocabulary. And when you have a healthy vocabulary, that can be a downside because you can fillet people with your mouth, right? If you, 
if you, if you turn loose, unfortunately, and you, you don't want to do that. Criticism has its dangers. In Norway, at wintertime, the snow on the mountains above the fjords is sometimes so finely balanced that a human voice can bring it crashing down in a tumultuous avalanche of danger and destructions. Critics can easily start a similar avalanche in human lives, and maybe you've been the recipient of unjust criticism. Jesus had his share of rejection letters from the religious elite of his day, and when confronted, uh, they really weren't too worried how he'd take the rejection. Second chapter of Mark's gospel constantly sounds this dull note of criticism. And I want you to notice the areas where Jesus is criticized, because that's pretty important. Pastor Travis last week uh, began with the paralytic in the very beginning of the second chapter of Mark. He was lowered through the roof by his friends. You remember that story, even if you weren't here. And uh, Jesus finds that uh, his authority over sin, first of all, is criticized, all right? In verse 2, Jesus, uh, it says, was speaking the word to them, those that were sitting around and watching this, uh, uh, this man be lowered through the roof. And you remember the religious upper muckety-muck were saying to themselves, they didn't even say it out loud, they were just saying to themselves, who is this guy that he thinks he can forgive sin? And Jesus, knowing what they were saying, responded to them. And Travis, uh, uh, in his translation, he said um, Jesus was preaching the word to them. And there's many translations that have that, uh, but not to criticize Travis by any means, but the, the actual word there is speaking, uh, not as is found in the King James and others, but that Jesus was speaking the word to them. It's the word used of just ordinary talking. Here, divine authority, isn't it a wonderful thing, is conversationalizing the gospel with people. Now, you probably had people like, like I've had, uh, especially when it comes to talking about some aspect of morals or some aspect of biblical truth, that they'll say, you know, don't preach to me. Stop preaching to me. And, and, and preaching is kind of a derogatory word in actuality. But I think here we're reminded that we need to rescue preaching from merely being a special activity in the pulpit or on the platform of the church to making it something that we do often when we open our mouths. Conversationalizing the good news of Jesus and God's love through Christ's sacrifice. Second chapter of Mark's gospel constantly sounds this dull note of criticism and is the beginning of a barrage of criticism aimed at the Christ. And as Pastor Travis called attention to uh, one of those areas last week where Jesus is criticized, namely uh, how he views sin, um, I want to continue to share a couple of other areas where Jesus is just pummeled with criticism and how we see that and how we see ourselves in the midst of that. Secondly, uh, Jesus' affection for sinners is criticized. Beginning with verse 13, Jesus goes out again by the seashore. All the people are coming to him. He's teaching them. And, and uh, uh, as Matthew passes by, Levi, the name we don't use all that often, uh, Jesus says to him as he's sitting in his tax booth, he says, follow me. And, and Matthew doesn't hesitate. He just gets up and follows him. And it happened that as he was later evidently invited to Matthew's house, and as they were reclining and eating and fellowshipping at the table, all of these other tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus. You invite the people that you know to your house for the party, right? 
You don't go out to the highways and the hedges and say, hey, would you mind showing up at uh, 313 South Simon Street for a little get-together, a little tete-a-tete, a little coffee and donuts. You invite the people that you know. And Matthew was inviting the people that he knew, that he knew. The fact that Jesus called Matthew at this moment is, is pretty extraordinary. Uh, we see in, in the Gospels that steadily the doors of the synagogue were shutting on Jesus. They were closing him, him out. So how, uh, now he was open-air preaching by the lakeside. Wasn't going to the church. He was in the fields. He was in the hills. He was in the mountains. He was on the seashore. How ironic is it not that the Son of God was banned from the very place that was regarded as the house of God. Matthew, he would have heard all that Jesus was doing in the neighborhood. He would be aware of those four ordinary fishermen who had chosen to follow Jesus. If you go to the next slide, Capernaum here uh, is, uh, is uh, go, I mean, go back if you would. You saw, you see, leave it there. You see Capernaum? <laughs> My long-range clicker wasn't working too well. But Capernaum, way at the top, as it goes around by the Sea of Galilee, and as it cuts off down where it says the road to the south, Capernaum stood on the road that linked these two provinces together. Natural place, natural place for a tax collector to work and to live. It's been said that Judea is on the road to nowhere. Galilee is on the road to everywhere, everywhere. Palestine the land bridge between Europe and Africa. If you keep following down that dotted line over to the left to the road to the south, eventually it goes into Africa and it goes into Egypt. So it was a, a huge pathway. If you go to the next slide, the great road of the sea led from Damascus by the way of Galilee through Capernaum down past Carmel to the plain of Sharon through Gaza and on into Egypt. It was one of the great roads of the world. And in those days, you didn't have a choice between 75 and 69 and whatever else to go. There was one main road. Matthew was what the Romans called a publicanus, a tax collector. He worked for Herod Antipas, who governed Galilee, and Matthew would simply collect taxes from those who came and went from Galilee to the area governed by Philip. You can go to the next slide. You see the, the, uh, the seaside place by Galilee. It was a seaport as well. Capernaum was one of the first towns to which a traveler came. Because of that, it was a customs center. So import, export taxes were collected. A very lucrative place. If you could pick a place to, to work as a tax collector, this would be it. And so tax collectors in ancient times uh, would pay their employer an agreed-upon annual sum. Actually, it wasn't all that agreed upon. The uh, king, the province leader, whatever else, would just dictate, you're going to pay me this. And anything else that they could extort above and beyond that was theirs to keep. And since most tax collectors extorted large personal fortunes, they were among the most hated people in the community. And you can bet that Matthew was a well-hated man. But he also evidently was a man who had uh, a hole in his bucket. He had a hole in his heart. He must have heard Jesus, perhaps heard him speak as he traveled up and down the road. Basically, if you go to the next slide, that was the business office of Matthew. The church didn't want anything to do with him, but Jesus did. Interesting. Which tells us something about our elder brother. In verse 16, Jesus is accused of associating and with quite unsuitable people. He endured that criticism. And why? So he could see changed lives. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? 
You can endure criticism. Come on. Sticks and stones may break my... You know the rhyme. Seeing changed lives. That's what it's about. Why is Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? He gives his own response. He gives his own answers. Two things he says. First of all, he says his ministry is for the lost. Verse 17. Hearing this, Jesus says to them, It is not those who are healthy that needs a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call righteous people. I came for sinners. Jesus insists that his reason for associating with these unloved people, these undesirables, these deplorables, if you will, is because these folks have a need, and he is the only one, the only one that can meet that need. Uh, That's the same with us, by the way. Behind this apparently simple statement is the answer to a deeper, more complex question about the reasons for the incarnation, the fact that God came in the flesh. It's not like Bette Midler says, from a distance. No, no. God came down. He connected with these created people. One major theologian of the recent past, John Stott, he challenges us not we got to put ourselves with loving sympathy inside the doubt of the doubting and the questions of the questioning and the condition of those who have lost their way, not to cut ourselves off from the foreign secular culture around us, nor to become assimilated into it. But you know, our culture today, it's been for quite some time, people don't like to be called lost. Have you noticed that? They don't like that phrase. What do you mean lost? I'm not lost. And on days when my patience maybe runs a little thin, but I still want to be diplomatic. I got one question that I ask. And that question is, can I ask where you're going? And depending on the age of the individual, they may say, I'm planning on going to college. I'm going to get a degree. Fabulous, fabulous. Uh, where are you going then? Well, I'm, I'm going out in the work world. I, I want to get a job. I want to get a good paying job, make lots of money. Hey, sounds like a plan. Where, where are you going then? Well, I'd, I'd like to get married. I'd like to have a family. You know, <laughs> man, doesn't everybody, oh, I, I pray good things for you. Where are you going then? Well, I, I, you know, I, I, I want to put away in an IRA and in some tax-deferred fund, uh, some annuity, because someday when I don't want to work anymore, I, I want to be able to retire. <laughs> Sounds like you got things kind of figured out. Where are you going then? And at that point, they're a little exasperated. And they usually say, I guess I'm going to die. You know what my next question is? Where are you going then? I mean, if, if you don't know the destination, and if, if you're not locked in with Jesus and you have not connected with him and you know your future is secure, when people think about death, I mean, is it an abyss? Is it a, is it a mist, a fog? Is it annihilation? Is it a nothingness? Is it really something on the other side? They don't know. So when you don't know the destination, let alone how to get there, is that not the classic? I don't mean to press people and peel their hair back on the other side. But hey, lost. We need to be about the position of those who have lost their way. And it's true that Matthew, out of all the disciples, gave up the most, really. He left everything to follow Jesus. You look at the other first followers of of Peter, Andrew, James, John, they could go back to their boats, right? And after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, Jesus is on the beach, and where are those dudes at? They're out fishing. They're back to their boats. Not so with Matthew. Matthew burned his bridges completely. It's a great example that sometime in every life, 
there comes a, a moment to, to really decide. And it may cost you everything. Matthew lost a job, but he got a far, a far bigger one. Notice also that Jesus is not only for the lost but by way of his ministry, but his message is to the lost. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners, verse 17, the second part. Jesus could always cut through the bone and the gristle and the fat to get down to the meat of things. He knew where the need was the greatest. Jesus does something that would be viewed as totally defiant to the religious elite. When invited to Matthew's house, Jesus actually accepts the invitation. And not only does Matthew get the straight skinny regarding the message of salvation, but also all of those that Matthew would invite to this gathering, which was everyone that the church in those days would consider as sinners and outcasts, just like Matthew. Uh, man, that's a crowd to preach to. I think it's sad, very sad, when you look at the contrast between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Orthodox folks of the day. Simply, they were not the kind of people whose company a sinner would have sought out. Not the kind of people. And we need to understand that the word sinner had a twofold understanding. Sometimes we, we forget the culture, or maybe you don't understand the culture of that day, but not to insult your intelligence, but maybe you have never thought about this. Uh, sinner. It described the person who broke the moral law, for sure, but it also meant a person who didn't observe the scribal or the traditional or the sacrimonial law. You could say the cultural law. For example, what does that mean? It means that the one who committed adultery and the one who ate pork were both sinners. Same crime, basically, same punishment. The one who was guilty of theft and murder and the one who didn't wash their hands the required number of times in the required way they were supposed to wash before they ate, both sinners, different crimes, same punishment. Both are sinners. Uh, I mean, you've got to be squeaky clean to be able to fellowship with some of these uh, high-exalted mystic poobahs from the Jewish religion in that day. I've got to scrub my own heart and ask the question, would someone who has broken not just the moral law, but has broken the cultural taboos of the church, seek out my company? And would I be open to it if they did? Jesus says a doctor goes where they're needed. Healthy people don't need one. Sick people do. So I'm not, I'm not any different. I'm going to spend time with those who are sick and need me the most. Now, you would be wrong if you took that as an, a, 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 some kind of an arrogant statement. It, it wasn't that Jesus had no use for good people because he said elsewhere that we shouldn't call anybody good because the only one good was God himself. The point Jesus was making is that the one person for whom Jesus could do absolutely nothing is the person who thinks of themselves so good that they don't need anything done for them. And the one person for whom Jesus can do anything and everything is the person who is not only a sinner and knows it, but the one who longs for a cure. But the criticizing scribes and Pharisees would be like a doctor who rejected their Hippocratic oath. They were too afraid of what they believed to be the contagion 
of the sinner. They didn't want anything to do with them for fear that they would get infected by the disease. If there was a mask against sin, they'd be wearing a double mask. I've been to India a number of times, and uh, there are a number of of, uh, old-time preachers and missionaries that I've read a lot about, because it interests me about those who have gone to India, especially in those days where there was no filtration system, there was no clean water, there was no sanitation, there was all kinds of disease and whatever there for the cause of the gospel. And one guy whose name was C.T. Studd, I don't know if you've ever heard of that name before, but in his day... He was like the LeBron James of cricket. Now, I know not many of you spend your Saturday afternoon looking for the cricket channel. But in India, I mean, they can tell you the names that, again, you can't even pronounce, let alone spell. They can tell you the teams, and cricket is big time. So C.T. Studd, this professional, uh, uh, top of his uh, class cricket player, gives up his profession packs his bags, and he goes to India as a missionary, and hundreds if not thousands of people get saved. But one of the most famous quotes from C.T. Studd, I I love it, I love it. This guy said, you know, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. Isn't that comfortable? But I want to run a rescue shop or a rescue mission within a yard of hell. That's my kind of guy. That's my kind of guy. So the invitation to salvation is not to righteous people, which there weren't any in the first place, but there were those who considered themselves righteous and worthy, but Jesus was called to those who were unworthy to every age. Today, desperate need. Christ's message, still relevant to every age. Today, he speaks to the sinful, to the lost, to the straying, to the needy, but more criticism is coming. Thirdly, his attitude towards religious rituals is criticized. John's disciples, the Pharisees, verse 18, they're fasting, they come to Jesus. How come these disciples fast, but yours don't? Jesus says, hey, this whole business about the bridegroom is there when we're celebrating, when we're partying, because the bridegroom is, is, is the one we're celebrating along with the bride. You can't, can't fast, that's no time to fast, and on and on. Then he goes into the new wineskin, old wineskin deal. These legalists, they had a need for comparative criticism. And when you deal with legalists today, you can bet your bottom dollar that they're going to compare this with that, and it's not a fair comparison. For most Jews, there was only one day in the year that was a compulsory fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. They called it Yom Kippur. And it was the day when all of Israel, the nation, confessed its sin and was forgiven its sin. But the stricter Jews, uh, they, they fasted twice a week on Monday and Thursday. But the fast consisted of six in the morning till six at night. I can do that with my hands behind my back, can't you? Six in the morning till six at night. And after that, they, they were free. Now, I'm not trying to poo-poo the act of, of, uh, of fasting, and neither, neither is Jesus. He didn't have anything against fasting. I mean, he's the one that fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Remember that? Good reasons to fast. The trouble with the religious leaders, however, is that fasting was more for putting the spotlight on themselves as being super spiritual people to the point where they powdered their faces to look pale. They wore clothes that were dirty and that were raggedy and tattered. They had long, sad faces. 
Almost sounds like the church I grew up in. <laughs> These legalists, they needed to compare criticism. Secondly, they had a need for reducing joy as well. Joy suckers, joy killers. Jesus uses this vivid picture to let the folks know why his disciples did not fast. In the tough era that first century Judaism was, under the Roman yoke, after a Jewish wedding, the couple did not do what our culture does, which is basically what? Honeymoon. Right? We go on a honeymoon. They didn't do that. They stayed at home for a week, and there was continual feasting and joy. And the entire neighborhood was invited over. It was actually, uh, well, in a life filled with hardship and pain. Think about it. Under the yoke of Roman oppression, the wedding week may well have been the happiest in a person's entire life. Actually, a rabbinic rule that said the following, all in attendance at a wedding are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. One thing about critics, they can remember the minutia, but when it comes to the important stuff, they totally forget it. So the wedding guests were exempt from fasting. So it is with a believer. The discovery of Christ, fellowship with Christ, is the key to happiness. But these legalists also had a need for limiting new possibilities. And so we get this illustration of the, the wineskins. I think it's pretty interesting that it's, it's not just Pharisees here that are criticizing Jesus. No, no, no. But John the baptizer's disciples join in. Now, you may say, oh, hey, they're only asking a question. How come these guys fast and your guys don't? And on a day when I felt less diplomatic, I might respond, come on, get real. How many times have you been asked a question that had a trunk load of TNT behind it? We all know that you can ask a question, but what's really meant is an accusation, Right? And since we're not privy to the tone of voice, the facial expressions, the body language that go with the question, you're free to take it as a question if you like. But I'm betting on the fact that there is criticism behind that sentence. John the baptizer was a known ascetic, meaning that he practiced self-denial, stringent way of life connected with his religious belief. It was a common thing in everyday practice. You know, you, you go get your hair cut and you get a couple of hairs down your, your shirt and, you know, you ask your wife who doesn't want to, but would you itch my back? Would you get that out of there? And... The guy wore a hair shirt. He ate locusts and honey as a regular diet. He was an ascetic. He was strict in regards to his practice of life. He was also no stranger to shattering orthodox ways of doing things. John was a classic example of a new piece of cloth that was tearing the old garment of Judaism. And Jesus, an expert in taking just the common everyday elements of life and making use of them as spiritual illustrations, speaks of the danger of sewing a new piece of cloth that had never been washed, never been shrunk to an old garment. If it ever got wet, the new piece would shrink, it would rip the older fabric. Jesus is letting us know, I think, that there is a time when the day of patching things up is over. Recreating has to begin. I've seen way too many churches torn apart because there were times when folks tried to patch something when what was really needed is the complete abandonment of the old and the acceptance of something new. Now, I realize that's a whole lot easier said than accepted. Same could be said about wine and wineskins in a day and time where their bottles were very, very rare. 
hard to get a hold of. When these skins were new, they had a certain amount of elasticity to them. But as they grew, grew older, they got hard, they got unyielding, and new wine, supposedly, I wouldn't know anything about that as a Baptist, but new wine is still fermenting, right? Got gases coming off of it. And gas causes pressure. So putting new wine in old wineskins assures a person of losing their contents when the skin explodes. And you know, I don't think Jesus has any fear of a certain amount of elasticity in our mind. I'm not talking about being open to any wind of doctrine that comes down the pike. But it's fatally easy to become set in our ways. Too easy to become dead from the neck up when it comes to the methodologies that are not etched or framed in a Bible verse. You realize it was less than a century ago where Sunday school was viewed as evil because it wasn't talked about in the Bible? Really? Wow! Whether this program that once met a need but now it really shouldn't continue, just because we had an event one time, does that mean it automatically is an annual event? Churches get tripped up all the time when people walk out and lives are broken and God's purpose and his mission is hampered at times because we're fixating on one thing and we're going uh, to hold on to that for dear life even if it kills us. We ain't letting go. I firmly uh, believe that it's a general rule. Now, I couldn't preach this 30 years ago, but I can today. I believe it's a general rule that as people grow older, almost everyone develops a constitutional dislike of what is new and unfamiliar. We grow unwilling to entertain any adjustments in our habits, the way we do things. Whereas I used to say, I like such and such a style of music, let's say. And I realize that that's not everybody's taste. And if you like uh, rap music, let's say, hey, that's fine. You know what I say now? I got no idea how you could ever consider saying rap music is music. I can't understand any of the words. There is no melodic line at all. So how in the world can you call something music when there is no melody? Music is like candy. It's only good when you throw away the rapper. Now that's, that's internally, right? But that's me. And let me just be real clear here. If you love rap music, because I know there's a lot of rap musicians or whatever else, that, that the words uh, are, are about Christ or about gospel or about salvation. And I can't tell you that I'll... But the example is we get set in our ways. And I can't tell you that I'll ever like rap music. We get critical. Someone in the church meeting once said, now, if we do that, if we give this up, if we chuck that away and we take on this something new, where are we going? In the end, somebody had to say bluntly, the, the Christian has got no right to ask where he's going. Abraham, not knowing where he was going, God called him to walk by faith. Hebrews 11.21, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff, his walking stick, as he was dying. Somebody said, with the very breath of death on him, the old traveler still had his pilgrim staff in hand. He was still ready for the journey. To the end day, with the evening now upon him, he was still ready for the road. If we're really going to rise to the height of the Christian challenge, we've got to retain an adventurous mind. 
We've got to be open to new possibilities or we'll get as crusty and as critical as those who criticize Jesus. If you've been following this Asbury revival that has come to a culmination and seeing that, if you read any of the books, I've read many of the books of the 1970 uh, Asbury revival because I was alive and well at that point in time and uh, Taylor University had uh, students that came and spoke about that. I said to myself, as this came out, not that I am all wise or have a word of knowledge or uh, can foretell the future, but I said to myself, uh, let's wait and, and let's wait to see the critics come out from, crawl out from their holes. Because I watched many of those services as those young people were worshiping God, was praising Jesus, was thanking Him for His salvation, were repenting of their sins, were asking for forgiveness, were committing their life to a certain walk. Sure enough, people coming out on the internet and, oh, that's just emotionalism, oh, that's just this, that's just that. Critics. Christ never allowed the critics to keep him from being open to what God was doing. There comes a time to throw a tattered garment away. There comes a time when the old wineskin's got to be traded for a new one. And may God give us the grace and the discernment to know the difference. A few questions I'd ask you. Do you have an affection for broken, hurting people? Is it to the degree that you would give up any and every non-biblical taboo or opinion that you firmly own to see them healed? Do you find yourself comparing yourself to others and criticizing them for the differences that they have with you? Do you find yourself constantly limiting what God can do because your mind and your heart has gotten hard and crusty? Has your joy in Christ been diminished because you focus on the negative? You've just given into a critical spirit. I feel, I, I, I love this quote by somebody who said, you know, I feel sorry for the guys who criticize and minimize the other guys whose enterprise has made them rise above the guys who criticize and minimize. Don't you? I mean, that's not just a cute turn of the phrase. That, that's an absolute truth, is it not? Feel sorry for them. Somebody else said, any fool can criticize and complain and condemn, and most fools do, but it takes character. It takes self-control to be understanding and forgiving. And if we're going to follow Jesus' lead in loving those who haven't come to understand who he is and what he's offering, we better leave criticism on the curb. Are you running from criticism? It's a little different tilt. If you're going to follow Christ, don't run scared of criticism. At times, you, you may need to embrace it. I love what Winston Churchill once said. He said, uh, you got enemies? Good. That means you stood up for something sometime in your life. I think it's high time for the church to stand up for the right thing, don't you? Stop being so self-impressed, so inward, so concerned about their own little fellowship with their own little pew and their own little potluck and their own little preacher. And I think it's time. So what in Jesus' name do you need to stand up for today? With your family, with your friends, maybe with yourself. Father, I just ask that today we would take seriously your word and our elder brother who endured criticism on our behalf did not let it deter him one iota from completing the mission to be a physician to those who are hurting. 
to those that maybe hadn't even been honest enough with themselves to say, yeah, I'm sick, yeah, I'm lost. But through our kindness, through our diplomacy, through our winsomeness, through our love, through our caring, there would be those that the church, perhaps in other areas, would look down upon, that we would say, man, everyone is welcome here. And not just to the church. Lord, help us not to hang on to the old wineskin that says they got to show up and cross the transom of 125 Stimson Street so they can hear the gospel in the workroom, in, 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 the, in the locker room, on the golf course, in the gym, in class before the teacher comes in. May we be able to say a word of confidence about our own brokenness and what Christ has done for us. And, oh, God, may we leave criticism on the curb as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.